This conversation in today's episode started because of an email that I received from Dave Parmenter. It was after he had listened to the episode of Surf Splendor that I published about six months ago with Greg Martz of the Waterman's Guild. Well, I loved hearing the main thing that it struck me was how deep you were willing to dive on this and providing a public service for the surfing public, both the, the consumer end and, you know, on the construction end about these things. And it also dawned on me how little people actually know about how, board, how surfboards are built. Parmenter is a shaper in San Luis Obispo, California, but for the past 30 years, he sends most of his boards 230 miles south to have them glassed by Greg Martz, which is an indicator, of course, of how highly Dave thinks of Greg and the quality of his work at the Waterman's Guild and the entire team there. I've had Parmenter on this show a couple of times in the past, and we did talk surfboard design, but we never really went through the fundamentals, the board building 101. You know, to kind of begin that, like the entry rocker of this, is that most people in the industry, historically, it doesn't matter what era, learn by rote, meaning they just watch other people or get taught something, almost like apprentice in you know, industrial era, like England, about how to cobble shoes or be a silversmith or a boat builder. And they learn the how of something, but they don't know why. And so I've been fortunate enough to be in a unique experience to have met a lot of people on the engineering side of this, a lot of experts in the materials, a lot of the people that were actually there, and as a technical writer for the magazines for you know, many decades, including helming that whole uh, surfboard technical department at Swell.com in the early uh, 2000s, when con- you could have as much content as you want because it was online. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have all these people at my disposal to ask questions and provide this as a technical writer. So a lot of this is not so much coming out of being a, a, a shaper myself. It comes from having to go and find a lot of these, these bits of information and engineering things from the source and remember them and keep them and, and collate it all so that I can present it to customers or people. Because there is huge misunderstandings and myths out there about everything from the foam up. I explained to Dave that, in fact, over the years, I've actually tried to steer these conversations away from the technical minutia, thinking it was too heady or mundane for the average listener. But the consensus of feedback that I've received over the years is that people want more tech detail. So Dave offered his time, or really he kind of insisted that we spend this amount of time together spend an afternoon together, and just fill in the gaps of everything about surfboard construction that we've neglected to cover over the years. Our goal was to create a comprehensive guide to surfboard building, including history, social context, and technical design information. I've edited our conversation into four parts, and I'm dedicating the entire month of October to this series, On Boards with Dave Parmenter. You'll also hear from other experts, namely glassers, along the way. But before we get into the bulk of the show, I've mentioned in the past that this show, this entire network of podcasts, is listener-supported with an assist from brands like Spy Optic, Neat Essentials, Visla, and recently Hurley. And as a thank you to listeners who make a financial donation through surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate, 
we're going to go ahead and do another surfboard giveaway this month. We've been able to give away three surfboards this year, an eco-conscious board with recycled foam, hemp cloth, and bioresin, an Alaya built from polonia wood, and a recyclable soft top. So this time around, considering that Parmenter and I are discussing surfboard construction all month long, I figured it was appropriate to introduce an interesting and innovative technical build. So this board this month is provided by Channel Islands, and it is their rocket-wide model built in their SpineTech technology. It's what Aton Osborne was riding in Stab High, where he won the 20000 bucks for doing the highest air. He said that it's the most pop he's ever felt in a board, and that's due to the construction of the board. The construction is available in most of their board models. It's available in EPS foam with um, epoxy resin. And I'll get really into the technical minutia of what spine tech is through the month. But the short story for now is that traditional stringers are made of wood, of course. And each time wood flexes, it breaks down slightly, as does all of the other surfboard materials. The fiberglass, the foam, the resin, all of that stuff slightly breaks down. So you're familiar when you get a brand uh, new board, how you kind of feel this, quote, pop. And then when you're riding an old board, it kind of feels dead. That pop is just a return to static from the flex. It's the speed at which that board returns to its kind of resting position. So the board, the stringer, it flexes as you go into a bottom turn, and then it springs you forward as the stringer returns to static. Of course, along with the inertia of the design elements of the contours and the fins, Spine Tech is this patented construction from Channel Islands. It's an engineered composite spine that is designed to provide kind of everlasting pop. It basically returns to static quicker than traditional materials, and it doesn't break down nearly as quickly as traditional stringer materials do. So here's Channel Islands lead designer Britt Merrick with a bit more of info beyond just that resilience. So you can see we've got a carbon layup on each side of the spine on the deck here and then we've got a particular carbon layup down the bottom and as I said over the last year we've been testing it with the team and a lot of different surfers to get the flex characteristics and patterns just right the thing about epoxy is it's got like a high flex frequency if you think about like sound waves or something and you know you could have like a long sound wave or a really short one if you want to use that analogy, epoxy is like a short sound wave. It's a really fast vibration sort of feeling flex in the board, whereas a PU construction would be like a longer sound wave, to use that analogy. It's like a, a slower, different feel of a flex. So what we're trying to do with this is harness that quick, uh, super resilient flex of epoxy and get it just right so that the board loads up correctly and then springs the way you want it to. Uh, every board flexes, but it's how you can harness it and direct it and get the right amount of load and release to make the best kind of surfing. So we've been experimenting with the carbon layups and we've got it dialed in in this combination. Again, we'll dive deep into the tech in future episodes, but the simplified version is your rocket wide that you can potentially win will come with two pound density EPS core, the SpineTech composite spine layered with the unidirectional carbon, 
two types of fiberglass, and of course, epoxy resin. Anybody who makes a donation of any size in the month of October will be entered to win. We suggest a recurring $5 monthly donation. Just set it and forget it. It ensures that we have the resources to keep this content coming weekly. If you want to cover someone else's free listening, there's also a $10 option or a $20 option, or you're welcome to just do a one-time donation of any size. We are grateful for any amount of support at all, and we're grateful to Channel Islands for supporting our listeners with this gift. You can learn more at cisurfboards.com. Of course, I'll have a link to all of the Spine Tech info and a video of Britt Merrick explaining it on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. And then I'll randomly select one winner on November 1st and then post a video of me selecting the winner on my Instagram stories at Surf Splendor. Thank you for that. And without further ado, I am David Scales. Welcome to part one of On Boards with Dave Parmenter. You can learn more about Dave Parmenter on his website, which is nowtro.com, N-O-W-T-R-O.com. His label is Aleutian Juice Surfboards. And of course, I've got images of everything that Dave and I discuss in this episode on surfsplendorpodcast.com. All right, enjoy part one of On Boards with Dave Parmenter. You know, if you look at the original, like a lot of our big quantum leaps in surfboard design and surfboard construction, they were done by people that were, if not actually engineers, they were kind of polymaths or, or super enthusiastic uh, amateurs. And you look, um, Bob Simmons comes to mind and, and guys like, uh, I mean, Gordon Clark was a chemical engineer and he's also an engine. He, he was a, you know, a pretty profound engineer with how he built his factory. Uh, state-of-the-art industrial hygiene and all that stuff had to be invented from scratch there was no model for it you didn't just go to japan or something and copy all the vats and drums and pipes and valves and like he had to do that and keep stay compliant until the end with you know the fire code and all that other stuff in southern california which is he would say is very anti-business and so it what i'm saying is it came from an engineering basis and somehow it drifted it got really neat in the 70s where you still had a huge amount of people that were versed in in surfboard construction and manufacture because every that was the surf industry then so the time-honored thing is if if you were like a shop grammy and you were even tolerated at a shop you went and hung out and if you didn't get kicked out then maybe you could move to sweeping the floor and then maybe fixing dings and eventually someday you would start working on boards at a lower level position and work your way up and everybody went through that so at that time in the in the 70s and into the 80s a lot of people that you if you were a board builder or a shaper, you would be talking to people about the boards they want to order, and they were very conversant on everything, on the types of foam they wanted, on stringers, and uh, the glass schedules they wanted, the types of resin, because there's a number of types of polyester resin that are commonly used. They, they knew all those type things. They knew the difference between like silene glass and all this other type of stuff, and orthophthalic and isophthalic resins, and vinyl ester resins and and what what marine resin was and what it you know how it didn't apply to surfboards they it was just people were knowledgeable about that uh, then at some point the leaders of the free world the editors at say surfer surfer magazine the bible of the sport came in more on a journalistic and you know bent and less with calluses on their hands 
I grew up listening to Steve Pesman, who had shaped. He'd worked in the industry, and all those like uncles that you grew up listening to, Mickey Munoz, Phil Edwards, Dick Brewer, they informed that in the magazines. So long story short is I think that the media, the surf media has dropped the ball in the last few decades and given up on informing the public. There's been a lot of fake science. There's been a lot of propping up of inferior uh, construction methods or materials or types of boards that didn't really warrant that. And uh, the, the thing is we need to get back to sound engineering on this. Like, and to do that, you need to understand what a surfboard is and most surfboards. So unless it is a balsa board or some sort of weird honeycomb construction like a, the old wave hollows or a, uh, you know, like a, a hollow carbon fiber type of thing, you know, all surfboards are first and foremost composite structures. Underneath that, the, the boards that we're talking about that we ride are foam sandwich constructions. So everything. It doesn't matter if it's a board that's coming out of uh, China, like a SurfTech type board that comes out of the Cobra factory that has a, it still has a foam core and some sort of a, a skin around it, fiberglass or high density foam. There are certain engineering precepts with foam sandwich constructions that, that we kind of want to dive into, I think, to understand what, what we're actually working with. When you say a surfboard is a composite structure, yes, composite basically means multiple materials. So, so in this in this case, the best way to say it is you have fiberglass yarn. Doesn't matter what type, what weight, what make. You have a foam lightweight core, and you have the resin, which is like this syrupy, unhardened stuff. All of those materials on their own are worthless. You can't ride a foam blank without breaking it, and the fiberglass is just floppy. Just it's, it's just fabric. The resin is just syrup until it's hardened. But but when all those things come together, and are impregnated in this manufacturing thing that we know, with laminating a lightweight foam core, they become something far greater than all their parts, and that's the foam sandwich construction, which is a lot of those things, a lot of those engineering principles are used in aviation too, because they have the same problem. With air, building airplanes, you have to have something that's very strong but very light. It has to be flexible enough to shed the load on it, like the wings or anything, any stress put on any, any part of the structure or control surfaces, but it can't be too stiff, just like surfboards. If it's too stiff, it will break. If you look out the window of your airplane when you're flying through a bit of turbulence, you see the wings kind of waving around. Any loose, looser, the skin would probably pop off the spars or the, any stiffer and it would snap. So there's this whole thing about shedding a load. And surfboards are kind of in that Goldilocks, when properly built and properly designed, are in that Goldilocks zone of being able to shed the load put upon them. Got it. So we're starting the conversation by defining what a surfboard is. Yes. Composite, structure, sandwich construction. Foam sandwich construction. That's what we've arrived at. And everybody, people say, well, but what about all these new things? And I say, there's nothing new, nothing new under the sun. Okay. And then they say, well, no, come on, Dave, that's not true. And I go, no, it's all, they're foam sandwich constructions. All you do is refine it, make it better, or you go places where labor and regulations are lax, labor's cheaper, regulations lax, so you can do these things to the nth degree. So the, the, they still have foam in the center, which is lightweight and largely insubstantial, whether it's EPS or polyurethane foam and they are glassed with fiberglass which is 
imbued with resin, and then they're sanded and resanded. And you know, one of the things about surfboards is they, how they're designed and how they're constructed, are largely monkey see, monkey do. And this is something if you read Gordon Clark's literature going way back, is they just says successful designs or manufacturing builds are copied and sometimes built upon. So. What that, sometimes what that tends to do is it tends to distance people in the trade from the sciences or the physics or the engineering that's behind them. Because you can end up just, I think what, what, you know, David, one of the things we see that I see is that people know how to do something, but they don't know the why of it. And, and so then some people get tongue-tied in talking to customers. There's, we need to develop a, a common language for the layman that doesn't really... Uh, you know, distance from the science behind it somehow. Sure. It doesn't give short shrift to the actual technical things. Just a quick detour for some historical context. Dave mentioned Gordon Clark a couple of times. Gordon Clark was the founder of Clark Foam, which dominated the surfboard blank making business from the early 1960s until 2005. Gordon Clark had a degree in engineering, and in 1955, he worked as the laminator at Hobie Surfboards, the soon-to-be largest surfboard manufacturer in the world. Clark began to develop polyurethane foam molds in the mid-50s, looking for a replacement material for balsa wood, which was costly and often hard to find. In 1958, Hobie Surfboards switched entirely from balsa to foam. Clark made an amicable split from Hobie in 1961. Parmenter later refers to this moment as 1962, so I'm not exactly sure if his date is correct or if Matt Warshaw's is with the information that I've got here. But um, when they made that split, Gordon founded Clark Foam to focus on polyurethane manufacturing for surfboard production, while Hobie stayed focused on board building. And again, Clark dominated the business for the next 50 years, which is where Dave developed his relationship with Gordon Clark, firstly as a client. Surfer Magazine named Clark as the 10th most influential surfer of the 20th century. In 2002, the magazine ranked him number two behind Quicksilver CEO Bob McKnight on their list of the 25 most powerful people in surfing. Interesting side note, after shuttering Clark Foam, Gordon Clark moved to his 52,000-acre ranch in central Oregon and began raising cattle and sheep. In 2010, he was named as his county's Livestockman of the Year. There's this whole thing about strength to weight, which is, if you're an engineer, it's very complicated. For our point of view, we can just kind of gloss over it because if there was an engineer listening to this they'd probably laugh at how he simplified you'd make strength to weight what then all those properties because there's all these like whatabouts and yeah but and things like that but for surfboards the way that the reason we're still riding the same boards the kind of the way that gordon clark and hobie and all those guys developed you know 58 on and 62 is because the materials are easy to use they're readily available and you can adjust and tweak design overnight and the industry has just gotten used to using them, but they're also pretty strong and pretty durable. There's there's probably better materials. There's ways to optimize them, but like polyurethane foam, for example, is mostly constructed. Um, as, you know, the formulas are based on cosmetics, like how beautiful it looks, and also just the sexiness of working with it as a shaper. If you've used a lot of EPS foam or a lot of grotty different foams, when you get a good you know, creamy, just beautiful polyurethane blank. It takes the tool, it takes the screen, it takes the sandpaper, and it's fun to work with. And the shapers love it. 
it also takes a lot of abuse too, unlike a lot of EPS epoxy boards. But so probably just starting at the beginning is one of the things like listening to the interview you had with Greg Martz was the little bit of uh, confusion about how surfboard, bl surfboard blanks as we know polyurethane blanks are blown, how they're manufactured. Okay. Before we start there, should we give a background about um, how surfboards were made before polyurethane and the introduction of polyurethane? Oh yeah, definitely. They well, they went through. I mean, the the, the ancient Polynesians uh, made all kinds of surfcraft out of everything, whatever they could find. But until they got to the islands of Hawaii, they didn't have trees big enough to make the boards that we know and love now and make surfing. You know, they just perfected the sport and made it just so much grander than it was. Um, so there was like willy willy and there was which is like a hawaiian balsa there's the koa wood for the bigger boards then later on when surfing spread more to, you know to california the mainland there was they used pine there was redwood then balsa became the thing and at some point balsa it, you know getting balsa as surfing started to boom you know when we got near the gidget era a little bit before the gidget era there's just materials just weren't that available and I you know one of the great apocryphal stories how Gordon Clark always stood by the backyard builder as a foam company as a you know a foam magnate was that he remembered as a kid trying to go down to like General Veneer in Long Beach or Los Angeles or whatever it was and get balsa but found that all the other big guys the uh, uh, Velzies and some of the other big manufacturers at the time had made sweetheart deals with these things and taken all the good good light balsa and left of all the you know junk heavy pithier stuff and so he determined always to back up the small builder because he knew what it was like so foam came in uh, everything that that we have in our surfboards came from the defense industry second world war aerospace industry starting in the 30s leading up through the war and it's no coincidence that the proximity of all that stuff and southern california surfing I mean, everything just boomed from there. It's one of the reasons why Clark kept his factory where it was in Southern California. It was just close to all the materials. It was close to all the technology. So foam had, uh, it went through a period where it was derided. They were called flexi flyers. They were, it was, I mean, even lightweight balsa boards when they came out were derided by the old lumberjacks that carried these big, heavy, hollow, you know, Blake type paddle boards down to Paddleboard Cove and Palos Verdes as like girls boards or sissies boards or something. So, I mean, that's another cultural thing. What were those original um, solid wood boards finished with? It depends. I think a lot of guys used, um, you know, there was, there was veneer, lacquer, shellac, things like that. Some, in Hawaii, they used uh, kukui oil and things like that. But balsa definitely needed to be fiberglass. So when that started, when fiberglasses became available, resins and fiberglasses became available after the war, that helped that because before they just, you know, soak up water and had to be dried out. Um, so when was the introduction of fiberglass and resin as we know it? Well, there's, a, there's one of these stories that I think in the 30s, um, and I don't know if it's true, but uh, Joe Quigg was, had heard about some of these materials, resins and fiberglass, and he was looking around, you know, L.A. for it, trying to get a hold of it, and he was being tracked as a like a nazi spy or something because oh these were all in you know things that were new new you know foams and there was one guy i think uh i forget his name but he had shown some samples of polyurethane foam early on to like hobie and those guys and then they started tinkering with it gordon clark was a 
you know, a, a, a chemist. He had a chemist, and he started working on it with Hobie. And then once surfing blew up, like in 1962, they started working with it in 58, I believe. And then by 62, things were so busy that that they both mutually agreed to just peel off, and he formed, and Gordon Clark foam, formed Clark Foam, and Hobie went on to just be Hobie. And, and there was a lot of other foam companies later on. There was like Walker, there was like South Shore Foam. There was all, there was, if you used to drive around the freeways when I was a kid, like in the late 60s and 70s, and you'd just see along the 405 there in that corridor, like where you live, there was, you'd see blank companies, you know? Really? Yeah. Wow. But that one, one by one, they just got run out of business by just, you know, poor business models or maybe poor foam, or they just couldn't compete with Clark's service sure. and, and quality too. But regulation? We think of certainly Gordon Clark and that Hobie Alter kind of partnership as being the genesis. Who was the actual genesis? Was there somebody um, prior that you know of? Well, the real Gordon, Gordon once told me, he just said, you don't believe all that shit, kid, do you? You read the magazines. Because he goes, you know, all this stuff about who was first, it's all bullshit because somebody was always doing it in their backyard to get in the water the next day and they never got credit. And he said, and I probably said this before to you, he says that the history of people to do things first with surfboards or anything in surfing are always really the first people that were going to do it commercially. So that's, you know, that's an important point. There's a lot of people that probably worked with it and never got credit. Right. Uh, but if you go back to the first foam sandwich board, uh, then maybe there was someone else doing it, but it's actually credited to Bob Simmons, who did a board that was very similar to some of these boards like the Firewires today, where he had a polystyrene core, balsa rails, and a, a thin plywood veneer as the skin on the deck. And that was, that was a leap, you know, quantum leap then. Sure. And then, you know, as foam, as foam got, as the polyurethane foams got better and more consistent, you know, surfboards got better. There, there was a long time, I remember Bill Barnfield telling me that a lot of time, uh, a lot of times at the end of that like balsa or wood era before polyurethane came in as the standard was that a lot of you go in there and see racks of 10-2 boards and he says those aren't always just for nose riding it's just that with wood boards you needed a certain displacement volume to offset the weight of the board so sometimes so the board what he was saying and I, I can't vouch for it I wasn't there at that time but he's an engineer you know mm -hmm. He, he said that that's a lot of that was that the boards were just oversized just because they compensate for the buoyancy and flotation they lost with the sheer weight. And then, of course, the, the, fo the foam, not too long after they, the polyurethane foams were, became standard, we got into the backyard era, you know, the shortboard came in, and that's the immediacy and the availability and the ease of using these materials kind of created the sport that we have because we had things that you or I could go into a shed with some mind machine in our head that we wanted to surf the next day at Honolua, Honolua or at La Jolla or something, and we could build that board overnight and get in the water the next day. If our materials were more complicated or more expensive or more exacting than that, we probably would not have the same sport. Gordon was wonderful because he had all these avuncular missives that he would send out every once in a while, these 30-page letters that would tell you everything about the state of the industry and what's going on. and. Uh, and they were they informed a lot of what I've learned because there was a lot of really good knowledge in there you used to be able to send away for all these uh, very very detailed engineering pamphlets that they would send out epoxy safety bond enhancement 
things about the rocker shop, all the types of resins that you would use in glassing the boards, all the, the densities of the polyurethane foams. And there was an, an incredible amount of really useful material there that nobody really availed themselves of. Well, let's touch on uh, densities of polyurethane. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's a probably decades of time where predominantly surfboards are being made out of polyurethane prior to EPS being introduced as an option. Those polyurethane boards, were they always available in multiple densities? In the early days of Clark, was well, it only one I, density? I don't, in those days, I don't, I think they, they're the long, the classic, what they would call a classic pour, and pour meaning they have this batter of resin, which is polyurethane. If you've ever seen a two-part polyurethane foam that you can buy at the local surf shop or at an auto place, auto body place, you, you, can, you mix it up like cake batter and you put it into something maybe like a motorcycle helmet or inside of a surfboard blank mold and it's incredibly expansive. I mean, you gotta watch that stuff. You can, I mean, I don't know what the expansion rate is, but if you put in you know, a couple cups of something, it will just go, it'll just explode, it'll mushroom. So we'll get into that, how the, how the blanks are blown, but um, the, the, the materials, I think that back then they had what they still have what you guys call the classic pour or the things that they use for toe, toe boards and that was was kind of the longboard era type formulas that Clark Clark had their classic formula that they kept which we would define now as being heavy super the heavy aver- yeah average surfer would pick that up and yeah well I think I think back then the, the the formulas and the manufacturing techniques and the molds and also the boards were bigger I mean these are you know nine ten foot longboards the the greater the volume is in the mold, the more that you have to worry about expansion and how it fills out at the tips and voids, you know, all those things that you guys have to deal with. You have to, if you look at blanks up to like a, a, a strong backlight, you can see it's just like cake batter or cakes. There's, there's some inconsistencies. So they have to make, uh, I think, concessions with the formulas against like strength and workability to getting rid of that. There's all this constant balancing of adjusting these things which is way over my head. I mean, it's not my forte. But, but let's illuminate that a little bit. Um, so you're pouring a liquid chemical, like yeah. you said, cake batter, yeah. into a mold. Yes. The sheer, um, just something as simple as the pattern in which you pour it can create issues with, once it expands, a pour line that will translate to air bubbles in the foam yeah. itself, inconsistencies, can you kind of illuminate about that? Well, I haven't worked in the, the factory, element. but well, that's that's those complexities are beyond me. You know, I've just have learned what I've been told. And some of that stuff is proprietary, like my friends at Clark Foam or people that I know there now. They're not going to be telling you all these teething pain problems. But but that's something the consumer isn't aware that the shaper needs to be concerned about. Right. Absolutely. But but to, so to do that, we should probably start about because we talked you talked about it with Greg Martz, when you asked him about how blanks are made and how, and he was talking about overshaping, which is a huge thing. It's like, if I could only talk about one thing today about surfboards, it would talk about overshaping. And by overshaping, I mean taking too much foam off a given blank, not just the shaper spending too much time shaping it. Right. So, so like for Clark foam or US blank purposes, now there are, there are some other high-tech ways that people use different I've heard of like really nice steel molds where things are injected in there but the Clark foam thing is you have a big clamshell mold out of cement that comes together like a clamshell and it when you pour this batter in there now those molds are created by a master 
a plug. And we call like some of these, all these blanks plugs. So you go to a guy like Pat Rawson, or you go to Dick Brewer, or Rusty Priesendorfer, and you say, we want to make a 6.8 board for this type of surfboard for somebody that can use it on like a CNC machine, but hand shape it. And they give them the shaper the parameters, and this shaper will go in there and very exactingly, using every bit of his skill and engineering prowess and mapping out of this blank, make a, a, a blank out of a heavy blank with a thick stringer so it won't twist, and then it's glass very, very heavy. And then that becomes the male part that goes in, and, and the mold is made around it. So those heavy concrete molds, I mean, I think Clark Foam had at the time they closed, they had over 70 blanks. That's, that's an incredible amount of blanks. It shows how rich our surfing design and how rich the culture is that you can have everything from, I mean, they used to have, Clark Foam used to have bodyboard plugs, bodyboard, you know, all the way up to a 13 foot, like sailboard blank that ended up being used for rescue boards and fish boards in Hawaii. Every one of those blanks has their own formulas for the densities. And every size of those are going to have different problems based on the, just the sheer volume of the board, the, the width and depth and breadth of that particular mold, because they're going to expand differently, right? And like you said, the, how people pour, just inconsistencies in temperature, inconsistencies in your resin supplier might send you your, your, your foam resins, and they might have like just not told you that they've changed something or something. So that's why, you're, that's why all the blanks that come in out of there are so coded on there about batch numbers and who poured it and everything so that the minute there's a problem the company in this case us blanks can go and isolate it and see what the hell happened it's super analog but it is it, it, and then people don't realize how much these things are like foam blanks are really the only true pop-outs everybody says oh pop out pop out but these are popped out of a mold so when you were talking with Greg about board strength, one of the things that people need to understand is that what, regardless of the manufacturer, regardless of the density of the foam, the blanks are blown deck down in the molds so that there is always, it's like a loaf of bread, the crust of the blank on the bottom, but especially the top, the tops more so, the harder foam is near the surface on the deck. So that's why shapers take all the foam that they need to mill a blank down to its required thickness off the bottom and not off the deck. Now. Things started to change in the 90s with the Slater era of guys writing super thin boards with a lot of rocker. And we had at that time, the workhorse was like the six, seven blank that was probably over three and a half inches thick. And they were using lightweight foams and people were overshaping the hell out of those things to get to that two and a quarter inch or whatever, you know, Slater rocket that was buried in that thing. Then the shaping machines came in and they weren't as good as they are now about what we call indexing the deck rocker. So when those router blades go over there, you want to take the least amount of foam off the deck. And they've, and they've worked really close. I know like KKL, they work really close with, with Gordon and they probably still do about making sure that the, there's machines can have really close tolerances for taking the minimum amount of foam off the deck. When you start cutting too much into the deck of a blank, you get into the softer foam. And that is why so many boards get soft or mush out or delam. And we don't see delam, delam, like true delaminations like we were in the 80s because the blanks have gotten better. Um, there's more understanding, the shaping machines have gotten better, but like Gordon Clark himself, and he had this wonderful thing, I wish I could remember it, but in one of his missives back in 1993, he just says he felt that there should be 
a special place for overshapers because they were going to that they were going to overshapers hell and so with those blanks when they when they're popped out of the mold they're very spongy they're still like cake that's just like cupcakes when you can't really quite eat them they go into i mean in clark phone's case it went into like a bunch of containers where it got hot in the day and they would cure and then they would start to get stiffer and more where you could actually use them then they went into the warehouse just like they are now where they're they're all packed away with no stringers in them and all the different densities like there's probably five or six viable densities or but really like probably three mainstream ones that you use at us blanks and all the other foam companies are probably like that um, and i just use us blanks there's a lot of fine foam companies out there but i use us blanks because they took over and continued on the clark foam tradition of like incredible customer service and delivery and the rocker shop and available and having the best shapers shape the best plug so i just use them as an example the blanks are warehouse by the hundreds in this enormous hangar and at, when somebody orders a blank the rocker is put in the, when the blank is sawn in half and glued up with a stringer so what happens there is they have a wood shop with all this stringer wood and you know how many types of stringer wood there are going to be thick thin redwood you know spruce basswood uh, balsa everything and you can Flies. glue them up yeah you can do them up in any kind of t-band sandwiches like wedges like all this kind of curved stringers the boards get run through a bandsaw. The, the guys in the rocker wood shop have rocker wood that they pre-cut using a rocker template. So a side profile of the board, looking at it from the side, the center stringer is cut, on, cut into a pre-existing rocker template that you, the customer, orders. And then they're put in these big clamps that are kind of like we used to use, like in Clark's foam case, uh, like gluing up airplane wings and they, the foam is bent to match that wood. Now, what's interesting is that, say like a workhorse blank you had, like in the old days it was the 6.7R or the 6.7A or like one of your workhorse blanks that everybody uses for modern shortboards, there, apart from the different densities for that blank, there are hundreds of rockers for those. So, and some, some of them are proprietary or what we used to call secret. Customers have their own proprietary rockers on file that nobody else can use. And then, then, then there's just some public ones where I remember seeing, you know, there was a couple hundred rockers for just like the 6.7R, the 6.7A. And then these are, you know, like 16 of an inch. You can do like minus one inch nose plus half tail, pull 18 inches you know, from the nose or pull from center or pull from 24 inches of the tail. And that's all where these guys, when they're gluing them up, bend the blank to suit it. So there's an infinite combination on these things, what I think is really cool uh, because it, 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 it forces the, the shaper to be a designer and not just shape this into the board. Let me reset a couple of things yeah. before we get too far off. You were saying um, a mold is designed for a given uh, surfboard that a shaper wants to make, right? Well, they, they so see a popularity implies, for it. If there's a need. So that implies, yeah. though, that the surfing is happening first and like a new board, we want to go shorter, so now we need shorter blanks. You Absolutely. know, it started off with 10-footers. Now we need a 7-footer. So um, 
the blank manufacturers are always kind of following the surfing that's happening in the water. That's the way that the progression is happening, correct? Absolutely. And okay. there, there's, and there, there used to be, or there, and I, I assume there still is the blank with Clark foam. And I'm sure it's, it still feels the same way with us blanks is it's a, it is a very tight family of people and it's not elitist. It's about people that work in the trade. It's about people that get out there and drive the delivery trucks and surf. And everybody has their feelers out and their antenna out for what's going on. And there's, the blanks really couldn't be what they are without the master shapers. You know, like right. a, it's like so my and my like Brewer did a lot of great ones in his day. Bruce Jones today, I think like the the my favorite blanks are Pat Rawson. I think he's the master shaper part bar none. You know, part I mean he's just like par excellence. He's the best guy. I mean he's just the best plug builder. He's the most author like he would be the I consider the most authoritative, all encompassing person in the industry about all the things foams resins working in all these machines shaping all over the world knowing all the design things i mean he's you know he's just he's a martian when it comes to that he's, he's brilliant at it so is bill barnfield other guys that aren't necessarily taken advantage of with all their knowledge now because things just move more towards fashion but the the, the shapers that shape these plugs to, that these molds are made from are forming yeah they're forming the baseline of all of our performance and all of our surfing now just to clarify you could just get a giant block of foam give that to the shaper and the shaper could make that into whatever design they wanted to the reason why we're employing these shapers to make specific blanks is to reduce waste essentially right so that if you only want to make a five or a you know six foot two board right then you want to give them as little foam as possible to match what the final product is going to be well, so they're not shaping away a giant block. Yeah, correct? well, that happened after Clark Foam closed in 03. We, we were literally, the first thing I did was shape a paddleboard out of a giant block of EPS just to go, because, well, this is the world we're in now. I'm going to see if I can do it, you know, like all the guys that I grew up reading about. Right. But it's not so much the waste. All, it's really about accuracy. I mean, there's a lot of product, there was a lot of production shapers in the old days. We don't have production shapers anymore now that start to finish. But there was guys with their big rock wells that could go in and take this big monolith of foam and really quickly and efficiently with a set pattern of just milling the hell out of it, it would get you a surfboard. And it would be accurate. It would be pretty accurate, too. But mostly it's, it's, for the, it's the starting point from board to board. So that leads me to the conversation about rockers. So the uh, plug or blank designer designs each blank with a natural rocker exactly. that is designed to meet the widest variety of needs probably for that style of it is it's a baseline you're right it is but it's also each blank it's they're also taking it it's also taken into consideration that with all the configurations and manipulations that say a six seven shortboard blank that's two and three quarters inches thick or something something like the the six seven p timmy patterson's epic shortboard performance plug you have to take into account with all that knowledge and kind of seat of the, your pants guesswork how you're going to be able to bend that. Like some of those blanks are going to be flattened out by as much as an inch in the nose, maybe added two inches in the tail. So you have to shape in a natural rocker that will allow all these contortions and bending of the blank without putting kinks in it. There's a lot of blanks when you start to put rocker in it. And I used to get this all the time. I would do a lot of off-label uses of blanks at Clark Foam, and I'd get a call, and the guys in the floor and going, "Ah, oh, yeah, you know, David, we're doing this, you know, nine two B or something." And uh, the rocker, it's just like it's going to be a kink in it, you know. So they knew, like they could tell, they're just that versed in it. 
that but when you start to bend something into a rocker that maybe hasn't been used, it might, with the way that that board is shaped and the foam and the volume and the way the thickness is distributed, you might just get like a not a natural rocker in it. That is like a nice clean arc where you look at it and it just looks like you threw a rocker and it just sank. You know, just a nice trajectory. You start to get staginess and kinks that you have to shape out, and then you're nowhere because you have to do that every board. So if you have to replicate boards, and this is before shaping machines sure. or even, you know, I mean, I don't use shaping machines, but so you can kind of see the problems. So explain why you as a shaper would want to order that blank with anything other than the natural rocker. Why do you need hundreds of rocker options? Well, there's a number of reasons, but I, but it leads me to a, a port, an important thing that I really want to talk about I'm super fired up to talk about because one of the greatest and most overlooked revolutions or uh, innovations in how our polyurethane polyester surfboards are made started in about 1992 with Clark Foam and Pat Rawson and what happened then in in short because it leads up to this rocker it it kind of created this rocker revolution we're in is that the old when I said that you pour the the this foam batter in a mold deck down the deck is lined with paper it's this mold release paper now in the in the old days prior to like 92 that paper when you peeled the blank out it was like a a cupcake baking cup it left huge fissures in it compared to what we see now Um, so you had to really shape into the deck to get into clean foam gordon clark at clark foam came up with this new deck paper system that created the decks were so clean, the boards came out of the mold so clean that he was actually scared. He thought that he had stumbled into this like new technology where he would have put us all out of work. And he wrote about it in some of his letters back then too. It's pretty interesting. If you ever want to go and maybe find it somewhere, he was talking about all this, how he found a way to make boards that almost re- basically didn't require the shaper anymore. True pop-outs. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 what, but what, so what Pat Rawson, he saw this and figured out this changes everything. And he developed with Clark Foam a thing we call the close tolerance blank, meaning that you had a blank that was very close to shape, kind of a specific use board. So if he had a um, you know, 6-7-A or, or that wasn't a close tolerance, but it's like one of the rusty plugs or something like that. Pat had a number of blanks, like his 7-5 back then, that were very close to the shape of the board that you would have shaped for, say, a pipeline board or something like that, 7-2. What happened because of that was that, and people didn't figure this out, but these blanks were so close to shape that the foam became stronger. You could use, say, like those old super light pour, and if you used it judiciously, it would be stronger than an overshaped green, which is a much so a super green is a higher so it goes ultra light, super light. Now with, with US blanks, it's new red, but then it goes to super blue, super green, and on up to the classics. But most people are in that super green down to the ultralight category of foam. So what happened was very quickly overnight, people like me that, that use these materials by hand would get one of these new close tolerance blanks from Clark Foam, just one pass off the bottom, scrape the deck it's hard to shape when you when you're saying one pass you're talking about yeah one planer. pass of your planer Got so it. you could get a, some of these blanks were not much over two and a half inches so if you wanted a two and three eighths thick shortboard you could take one or two passes off the bottom and then you would just scrape the, the crust off the deck and have this really hard crust that would impede or you know push back against denting and you could 
actually use a lighter weight blank, lighter density blank with less glass, less glass layers. You could go with two fours, two full fours maybe on the deck instead of staggering it the way people used to do and maybe one in the bottom and you actually got a lighter and stronger board than the old way, than using more heavier glass on an overshaped, like super green denser blank, foam. denser blank. And, and Gordon said too, that, he, that there was a lot of the right, the shaper using these materials right could actually make a stronger board with lighter materials and less glass and make it lighter and be stronger than somebody doing it wrong. And that was a huge, huge revolution. And, and I'm telling you, David, some of those blanks, you could fit the waste. I'm talking about rail cuttings and the foam that you took off the board into a gallon Ziploc bag. Really? Yeah. Saves money, uses less resources, yeah. um, the shaper. And so then you ask about rocker, like how do you put all these rockers in it? Well, for a long time on the oversized blanks, a lot of shapers were good production shapers because we had production shapers that maybe did five or 10,000 boards anonymously for a big, big label. We don't have those anymore because everybody uses a shaping machine. So people don't learn those production skills. And by production, I mean being able to go in there and address a blank and just mow the hell out of it and get down to where you want really quick without any messing around. These guys were just really good foam smiths, you know, guys like Terry Martin and people like that that just shaped, you know, 100,000 boards. And they, they were just so accurate and they could remove a lot of foam efficiently and quickly and accurately. Um, so we got into this new world where you couldn't like on a, on a raw, on a short, Shortboard Rawson type close tolerance plug that is basically the still the, the foundation of all the blanks at US blank. Most of these blanks have adopted that. Most of them, I would say, are fairly close tolerance blanks. You couldn't, there was no room to shape the rocker you wanted into it anymore. It just wasn't. The noses were almost there, the tails were almost there. So, what you had to do was design your board pretty similar to like how people do them on with CAD design now, you had to design it in the factory. So you would call Clark Foam or you call US Blanks or you write in your order and you have your own custom rocker templates or you had your measurements and they would glue up the, that blank to, that, to match that rocker. Now you had to, there's other things like you have to account for spring back. You have to, if the blank is really bent to accommodate a new rocker, as you start to cut into it, shape it naturally, unless there's a really thick stringer, it'll kind of, you'll lose a little bit and that's called spring back. So you have to kind of, you know, factor all that in and compensate for that, right? But so it was, a, it was kind of a revolution because all of a sudden you could arrive at the same exact starting point. Like I could order 10 blanks with my custom rocker and a given close tolerance blank and they would be, you didn't need rocker jigs anymore or rocker templates. You, if you were a decent enough shaper, you had an exact starting point every time. You didn't have to wonder if some if you gave a board to a pro surfer and he's like i don't know it wasn't as good as the last one you didn't have to go oh maybe i put the wrong rocker in it the rocker's there and unless you blow it it's it's going to be there from board to board to board so that was a huge innovation and no one really knows about it that whole thing that came about in in 92 with pat ross and he you know we all owe him a huge debt because our our phone our boards have all gotten so much stronger i went i immediately changed my glass schedules no more of this two fours and a three quarter four deck patch with a quarter, you know, like a tail stomp pad. Like you just didn't need that anymore. The foam was so strong if you didn't overshape that you could start building boards with less glass. And then so you started getting these just really light, solid boards. And the boards feel differently too. When you have two full four layers of uh, 
you know, like four ounce or an S, four ounce S on the deck and one on the bottom, it changes the flex patterns too. And it changes where sanders are hitting seams and things. And all of a sudden everything just kind of improved. So those are the things that go unacknowledged in, in this. And, and we all take advantage, every, it, we're still the beneficiaries of it today. I know, I know you hate to hear me cut it off right there, um, but man, thanks, Dave, so much, Parmenter. I really appreciate it. We've got so much more ground to cover. I've got a full three hours left of content with Dave and, of course, a couple of other voices that I'm going to introduce in the coming episodes. In parts two through four of this series, we'll continue the discussion of Rocker. We will discuss glassing schedule and the perhaps most important person in this entire process of board building, the sander. We'll discuss fins. We will also discuss imported boards and the misconceptions and the truths associated with that whole conversation, which has kind of gotten out of control on Instagram. Uh, Lots to look forward to, and I think we all owe Dave a thanks for this. I'm grateful that he'd embrace this platform and spend so much time here. His label, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, is Aleutian Juice. You should definitely order a surfboard from him. I'm riding his 12-foot paddle surf vehicle. It is the single best board choice that I have made in years. Completely opens up new spots that I've never surfed and never even looked at before. It is It kind of doubles as a prone paddleboard, but with design elements in it that allow you to surf. And so um, I've just, you can ride it on giant balmy waves like you would ride a gun, but you could also just ride it on smaller swamped out waves. I mean, again, it just, it opens up all sorts of new spots that um, no board in my quiver would allow me to surf. So I'm super psyched on that. Greg Martz raves about Dave's Stub Vector, which is a high performance hybrid. Dave's website is nowtro.com. Of course, I'll post everything that we discussed, including images of Dave's boards and himself on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I actually want to try to do a Q&A as well with you. So if you have any questions for Dave based on this conversation or maybe something about one of his other boards that he's made you or just that you've seen, channels, fins, whatever, record your question into your iPhone. Do an audio recording into your iPhone email it to me at surfsplendorpodcast.com. I'll see if I can get Dave to answer some of those questions on air, and then I'll include them in episode two and, of course, three and four. And I'll stay on track with our conversation here. But now that this conversation is out there and public, I would love to include you in it as well. So send me your recorded questions. Also, don't forget that you can win that Spine Tech board from Channel Islands. If you're set up with a recurring donation, you're already entered to win. If you want to get in on this, you're more than welcome to. Please join any financial donation that comes in in the month of October will be entered to win. You can do that on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. Channel Islands is very generously donating the board. It is the rocket wide model and it's with their spine tech construction. An EPS blank, a composite spine laid up with surrounding carbon, and of course, epoxy resin. Parmenter and I will break down different resin types and various cloth types in upcoming episodes. 
but that spine tech is basically designed to remain resilient much longer than you're accustomed to with your regular build. It's like having a fresh board indefinitely. I have footage of that board being surfed and the tech info on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. The winner of the board will only be responsible for the shipping cost. All right, I hope that you enjoyed part one of On Boards with Dave Parmenter. Send feedback and questions for Dave, and we will be back next Wednesday with part two. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Until then, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.